When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Andrew Konya, CEO and co-founder of Remesh. Remesh, which has raised more than $13 million in initial funding, uses AI to enable brands to engage with audience quickly, more in-depth, and generate actionable insights from qualitative research. Today on the show, Andrew and I talk about Remesh and, and what it is and where it was birthed from, why focus on qualitative research to begin with, but then also take on his analytics journey, which I think could be very beneficial to those listening to this, as well as the things he's learned along the way, mistakes made, etc. I hope you enjoy this show with Andrew. Andrew, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Well, excited to have you here. Let's get started with your background. You know, where did you start your career or education? And were there any pivotal moments along the way to founding Remesh? Yeah, so I started my education at Kent State University at the Liquid Crystal Institute. Um, I was working on a PhD in computational physics with a focus on something called programmable matter, which is programming molecules to do the things that you want to. It's kind of in that environment that I initially came up with this idea to start something 
with a focus on solving uh, the things that Remesh does. I'm going to skip the details of that for now, but I think a notable thing along the way was that, you know, as a physicist, you're not really taught how to do business or even start an organization. So I met this person, Kate Harmon, early from Kent, who was focused on entrepreneurship. She taught me how to build a deck and how to actually tell a story around an idea. That got me enough to get a little bit of money, which was enough to get a first patent in place and go meet this other person, Charlie Stack, who was the first person willing to sit down for me while I lectured him for three hours on all of the math that we were using to solve uh, the things that Remesh does. He became one of our first investors in Cleveland just so that we could build the tech. And as we moved to New York is where I met kind of a third important mentor along the way, which is Jenny Fielding. And she was, I would say, the first person to kind of whoop me in the shape and think about building a business and not just about building technology and, and solving a problem. And made it very clear that there's kind of other pieces that you have to solve to create something long-term and sustaining. All right. Well, tell us a little bit about what Remesh is and where, where the idea came from. Because it seems, what I know about it, it seems to be, in my mind, a long way from programmable matter. <laughs> yes, yeah, certainly. So the genesis of it came in a conversation I was having with friends who were on two sides of a violent conflict. And my friends were frustrated that they thought the people making the decisions about what to do next in this high tension situation were not at all aware of what their population actually thought about. And my friends kind of knew that I was a nerd, knew that I studied physics and said, Andrew, why can't you just go build us an AI or something that can talk to our population and then represent it to the people making these decisions? And so at the time, a lot of what I was doing was building computer algorithms that did a bunch of small calculations to compute some big thing and put it all together to make sense of it. And so I decided that I wanted to try and tackle the human problem that was associated, which is, can I take a bunch of information from a huge population of people and represent that population in a way that's simple enough for a decision maker like a politician to understand it? And so along the way, I think, you know, I was ignorant to what I've now learned is called market research. And our idea was pretty simple. It was, hey, we know that if you want to get to know a person, the thing that you're going to do is sit down and have a conversation with them. And you'll ask them a question. And based on what they say, you'll ask another question. And it'll go on like that for an hour. And when you're done, you understand them. And so our idea was, can we scale that one-on-one -on -one conversation that you've had with a person to a population worth of people? And that kind of core idea has been what's driven us you know, even to this day. It sounds like you were set out to solve an argument at some at some level. When did you make the flip to creating a business out of this? Yeah, so when we first started, you know, we were like, hey, let's solve this tech problem, which is can we aggregate a whole bunch of natural language data from a population and make sense of it in like two minutes or less? And we built a first version of that at a hackathon, and it worked. It was pretty cool. And then we started scoping out what it would require to actually build something that could work for an entire population, right? So maybe like 10 million people. And very quickly, we realized that the lift to do it was huge, that what we thought was a simple problem, or at least a simple problem in our world, was way harder than we ever imagined. And so uh, at that point, it became clear that really the only way that it was sustainable to work on it was to develop some machine that would take the technology we were building and turn it into money. And it turns out that 
what you call that machine is a business. And so that's uh, what we then had to set out to say, how do we take the technology we've built and create a business out of it? And so that's what led us to move to New York City, meet Jenny Fielding, as I mentioned, from Techstars, and then start building a business out of it. Got it. And you mentioned natural language, and I know you're taking in a lot of qualitative input in Remesh. We'll get to you know, telling us a little bit more about Remesh in a minute, but why qual? Like why, why was that in the natural starting point for you? Yeah. So, you know, we knew that the thing that a lot of people were doing to understand the population was surveys, right? And we had trouble kind of coming to terms with it because we kept coming back to, if I wanted to understand one person, would I do this? And if I wanted to understand one person's opinion of a thing, I would, I could never think of a scenario where I would prefer to have them answer a multiple choice question over actually having a live conversation with them. And so this idea of live conversation, at the time, we actually didn't know it was called qual, we just called it live conversation. (laughs) We now understand that that's kind of the side of the spectrum that people in market research refer to as qualitative. So for us, it was qualitative because that was really the only thing that truly got to the truth. Um, Everything else was something that you would make, make a sacrifice on to get scale at the cost of the depth that you would actually get in conversation. And so for that reason, we said, let's stick with the focus on qual and just figure out how to scale it to quantitative, quantitative scales. Okay. Well, tell us a little bit about Remesh today and how it works. Yeah. So Remesh today does uh, what we set out to do originally, though not yet for a population. And that is it allows one moderator to have a live back and forth conversation with a population of people. Uh, Today, that's about a thousand people that we can do. And that means that a moderator is going to kind of come into the conversation from one side and up to this thousand people will come into the other side. And what'll happen is a almost call it like an IDI or an interview. The moderator will ask a question. All of the participants will respond. Within about two minutes, we'll crunch all of the data, including the natural language, and present to the moderator what best represents that group so that they can continue on with the conversation. And so uh, it allows people to have what looks like a focus group, but takes place at the scale of what people think about quantitative research. So this is kind of the first idea of it thing that we've kind of learned a bit along the way is that what we want to do is understand a population. And in the world of qual, it's hard to say specifically what that means. And so a lot of what we've been doing recently is to say, ask ourselves, what does it mean to understand this population? And the way that we've done it so far is to frame the problem by going, this model that we train that's going on in that two minutes, how well would that model predict what a new person who just jumped into the conversation would have said. And so this lets us test our models and make them get better and better and better. And it's the model that does best at that, that is at any one given time, the model that sits on our product to say what best represents a group. Got it. Okay. I mean, it sounds like a lot is going on in those one, the two minutes that they're responding to things, but also the hour long conversation that they're, the moderators having with a thousand people. Can you give us maybe more of a, a real life example of how it works? Yeah, certainly. So probably one good example is something we did with the city of Cornwall. I should say Deloitte helped out on this one. Basically what was going on there is that there was a they would call it an epidemic of loneliness. So kind of for a combination of reasons, the population was feeling quite lonely and they were starting to notice this like at scale, meaning everywhere in the population. And 
what they wanted to do was to understand what was really causing that. Like, why did people feel that way? And was there anything that they could do about it? And so what they did was uh, they held one of these live remeshes. They had a moderator on one side and I think about three to 400 citizens of this county and on the other side. And when they started the conversation, they basically just did a little bit of warm up like you would got to know them as people and talked about what they cared about. And then as it progressed, they dug in to ask questions that really got to the deep personal issues that they were dealing with. Um, and through that, they surfaced uh, really what was causing the loneliness. Um, and they even kind of went on to then talk about what people think that they could actually do as a, as a city to address it. And the whole thing took place in about a one-hour conversation and led to changes that I think have impacts on a lot of individual lives, which we thought was super cool. Yeah. So in essence, just to rephrase kind of what you said, you know, as people are coming in and they're responding to these questions about loneliness and what's causing the loneliness, you're getting almost real time information on, you know, X percent of the population that is in this group is, is attributing their loneliness to X or Y. Is that, is that kind of how it works? And then you're able to probe from there. Yeah. So you can think of the moderator asks a question like, what makes you feel lonely? And now all 400 of those people at the exact same time are typing in what they think. We follow up with a small voting exercise. So think like conjoin or an AB style thing that happens for maybe 30 seconds. And during that about two minute period, we are crunching the language with one set of algorithms. We're crunching the voting data with another. And then we blend those together to show what verbatim responses from those 400 people best represent A, the group overall, so the entire population. And then we break those into the segments. So, you know, the segments of the population that are really responding and thinking differently, and then say, here's the demographics of that population. And that whole thing from when the moderator asks the question to when we've presented those results I just mentioned, that whole process takes about two minutes. And so the idea is that the, you know, the moderator reads through it, they kind of use their moderator brain, which I've learned is a, a really cool thing to decide what is important to talk about or ask next. And then they ask the next question and it proceeds like that. Ah, okay. So now I understand the physics and the mathematics play a huge role in this because you've, it's all math to crunch all of that information, I imagine. Yeah, certainly. So it's a, it's a reasonably hard problem just to crunch that type of data overall. Doing it in real time turns a pretty hard problem into a really hard one. And a lot of my background was in like high, like in supercomputing, which became helpful in the early days of figuring out how to break this problem down. Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, so what about, so that's one that we're taking on loneliness, which is very valid concern and, and very noble undertaking to try to solve that. What would a commercial example, maybe in advertising or marketing look like? Yeah. So in marketing or advertising, I think we, people use us in a lot of the same places that they would in, if they were to use a traditional focus group or maybe something like a an ad test, generally it happens in one of maybe four spots, right? One spot is where they want to understand what their population of people that they're going to market to, what they're generally thinking about right now. So they want to know what is on their mind, what are the conversations that they're likely to be having. And so in this case, they'll hold a remesh, they'll moderate and have this general kind of exploratory conversation about the things that matter to them, the things they're concerned about, the things they're excited about at this kind of point in time. The next day, they'll turn around and use that to maybe create the initial ideas for a campaign. So maybe they'll learn people are really care a lot about sustainability right now. And to them, sustainability means that 
products are sourced from local sources. And they'll go, hey, our product is sourced from local sources. So let's kind of think about creating a campaign that talks about that. Then, you know, they'll come up with the ideas of what that campaign might look like and go, well, how do we know which one of these is going to be the best? And they'll have another session. They'll have this other, another live conversation. They'll usually kind of present those ideas of what the campaign might look like and just have a conversation with the group about how they're reacting to it and what how it makes them think and feel. Usually from there, they'll kind of select one of them, but usually with a bit of information about why that one worked and how that one could be better. They'll turn that into uh, hi-fi, like kind of the collateral or the content that's ready to be pushed into the world. And once they have it ready, then every Kind of increasingly now, but uh, initial kind of every now and then they'll actually test it, have a conversation one more time to basically make sure that they haven't done anything extremely offensive. That one is usually not necessary if you've had conversations with your audience along the way, but in some cases people will just use us to uh, make sure they haven't done something offensive. <laughs> got it, got it. Well, you so it's fascinating to hear what you've done with Remesh. Analytics and data science is a more important aspect of marketing today. And I think most of the listeners on the phone are dabbling in it, trying to figure out how to make the best use of it for various types of problems. And I applaud you on your efforts with Remesh. It sounds really interesting. As you think about you know, what other people might learn from your own analytics journey um, and, and venturing maybe uh, unintendedly into the marketing space, what have you learned along your analytics journey? Yeah. So I'll Try and give maybe a few anecdotes here. So my journey is, I guess, in some degrees, it's a little bit limited, right? I've spent most of my time as a physicist. In that world, you learn how to get the right data and solve really hard problems. You think a lot less about how to present those results to people that are going to make decisions with them. I've had two experiences, though, that have taught me kind of the brutal truths of uh, the other side of the equation. One of those was kind of rebuilding how the United Nations architects, stores, and retrieves their knowledge. And one of the things that I learned very quickly in there is that the hardest problem was not actually crunching the data or thinking about the model. The most important or hardest problem to solve was actually building empathy for the person who is going to consume the data, the person who is going to make a decision based on it, in enough that I could understand exactly what needed to be put in front of them so that they understood the truth and could make the right decision. And I think a lot of what I've learned is that the people who tend to be really good at analytics or really good at crunching numbers often miss that last step of realizing that the data that you crunch or the analysis that you do is only as good as the truth that it creates in the mind of the person making the decision. And that tends to mean that understanding how that person's going to make a decision and understanding what that person's aptitude is for kind of comprehending how data is presented to them almost needs to be the starting point from which you work backwards to figure out how you can turn a whole bunch of complex data into something that tells a succinct story that can inform a decision. So I think that's a one super important thing that we learned. Even in building out our own product, I, probably there is a long list of graveyarded analytics features that we would you know, think of some really cool analysis we could do on the data. And we would prototype it up and we would put it in front of a customer who are you know, largely qualitative researchers. And they would go, what, what does this even mean? Right? right? And we would go, well, damn, we thought we had something really cool. Uh, <laughs> but if it doesn't 
produce an understanding in your brain, then it's really not something that's worthwhile for us to push out. And so I think that's been a learning that we that's kind of came the hard way, which is the important of, importance of being able to present the truth in a way that reconstructs that same truth in the mind of the person consuming it as being the kind of the cornerstone of, of a good analytics workflow. Right. And so I understand that the, you know, you, you're trying to make the presentation of the information more digestible and easier to understand and create their own, you know, truth, so to speak, in their heads. Do you, do you find yourselves having, do you find yourself having to make trade-offs on the analytical processes you would normally use, meaning like simplifying the analytics in that effort or has that not been an issue at this point meaning you can you know use the most advanced things you can think of but just really just cracking the nut of how to present the output better yeah so i think right now at least the biggest trade-offs are you know you're usually trading off one kind of truth for another so i'll give an example of that that's kind of close to our hearts so of the data that we collect it really allows us to paint maybe there's two different types of pictures of the world Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. One of those is we can tell you here is the verbatim and all the nuance of a natural language response that someone actually wrote that really represents this population. And what comes with that is this deep human connectedness of being able to understand this is what a human typed and it really represents everyone. But that doesn't actually represent everyone. There's some group of people that are totally not captured and would totally disagree with it. And they're part of that population. And so if you present only those kind of verbatims representing the population, you have lost something, right? You've lost some key truths that are there. On the flip side, if you imagine instead what we were to do is to extract the topics from it, well, now we could say this is the percentage of people who support any one of these topics. And any one verbatim is nuanced, but topics, there's plenty of occurrences of those throughout a throughout a set of responses. And so in this case, you haven't actually lost anyone. Every person is represented. They There is a topic that they support. But you've lost the resolution of the actual kind of nuance of a specific verbatim. And so those types of trade-offs between like, what are you willing to give are things that we encounter a lot. Generally, when we can, we try to just do both and let let our users like, click a button to switch between the two. But a lot of times that's you have to kind of pick one and knowing which is going to be most useful is only something that the person using it can really make an informed decision on. Hmm. That's really interesting. Well, what other what other learnings have you had along the way? 
Yeah. So I think one of the ones that, you know, coming from physics and especially my side of it, which was theory, I always thought of the math and the algorithm as like the most important part of what happens. And when I entered the real world, if you can call it that, one of the things I learned is that having the good data is often the hardest problem, meaning high quality data was really rare. And if you didn't have high quality data, then really didn't matter what kind of algorithm you had. And so that became something that I'd never really had to think too much about before because I was collaborating with experimenters in physics who are really good about creating really high quality data. So you just didn't think about it. But in the real world, the absence of it meant that the smartest model you could create actually wasn't useful at all. That's hilarious. There was this saying, dating myself a little bit, but in the business world, probably late 90s, early 2000s, when CRM systems were becoming big, right? And you had these huge multi-million dollar installations before salesforce.com. And it used to be a saying of shit in, shit out, meaning yep. <laughs> <laughs> whatever went in, it was what was going to come out on the back end. So, so th- tell us a little bit more about what you mean by good data quality. Yeah. So I think data quality comes, I've learned along many axes in the business world, try and break those down a little bit. So the first one I would say is, is the data that you have a accurate sampling of the world you care about? You know, in market research, this is kind of an easy thing to think about. We say, did we actually sample the population correctly? But turns out there's anywhere you're using data, there really is a a sampling question of, does the sample of data we collected have some weird bias in it that's a byproduct of how we collected it? So that's kind of like piece number one is like, did we actually sample the data in a way that doesn't add a kind of really bad bias? The second bit, which turns out to be in the real world super important, is how much of the data is partial or missing. So oftentimes, to use your Salesforce example, you'll collect a You'll have a piece of data on a lead, but you won't actually log part of something that happened in that transaction. And so you'll have kind of a partial piece of data. And so the amount of data that you have that's partially there now becomes a limiting factor in the types of models, right? So this is the second kind of quality that can be low. The third type of quality that can be low is probably the most obvious one. And that is, is it just wrong? It turns out if you your data is derived from human beings entering things, even if all intents are good, likely they'll just make mistakes. And so you generally can't actually make an assumption that all of the data is perfectly truthful. Uh, you'll have to then make stochastic assumptions. The third or the fourth there is probably the one that's most relevant to what we're talking about, which is, has the data that we've gathered does it match the questions that we want to ask? And that might not sound like something which is a quality metric, but if you think about the quality of data as being how well that data serves to answer the question you want to ask, then alignment between those two things actually is super important. So I'll give you a quick example of where how I learned that problem the hard way. So we're, we're maybe about three and a half years of having a business, meaning that we've sold anything. And so that was like a new thing that I had to learn is how to manage a business that sells stuff. And being a data person, I was kind of always obsessed with like, let me measure uh, the key points of this. And anyone who does sales knows your funnel is kind of your the most important thing, right? It's being able to track from when you gain a lead to when you kind of first talk to them and how that conversation progresses to lead to a sale. And along the way, you look at how you do at converting through these various stages. And uh, not too embarrassingly, not that long ago, going into a board meeting, we had this key question, which was, 
we were trying to understand where in our funnel were we weakest. And we knew that when people used our platform, they would stick around and like we would have them for life, or at least for our life so far. But we wanted to know like what was keeping people from getting to that point. And our hypothesis was that we we hadn't really dialed in a really great way to demo it. And so being a data scientist, I went, cool, this is like a really easy question to answer. Let's just pull our Salesforce data up and see what the drop-off rate is after demos. Well, it turns out that we weren't actually logging when we did demos. So this very trivial calculation that could be done was totally foiled and we basically had to make a guess at it because we just hadn't entered it into our database, hadn't recorded it. So that was a really tough lesson in knowing where you need to be, what you're going to ask ahead of time so that you know what data you actually need to collect in your system beforehand. That's, I think, of the types of corners that I wish I could, I wish I knew to see around a few years ago. <laughs> no, that's great. I love the example too. We, we all have data that we wish we had collected and it's only until we need that data that we realize the bonehead moment where we forgot. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So that's awesome. Well, I mean, I'm fascinated by what you're doing and the math that's behind it in particular and the I have a infatuation, if you will, with natural language processing and being able to extract more meaning from humans in that regard. Maybe it's the psychology background I have. And there's a there's a guy that's coming up on the podcast probably a few weeks after after this one releases, Michael Platt, who's a neuroscientist at Wharton, and uh, talks about a um, I can't remember the exact term that he uses. I think it's something. Don't quote me on this, but something like connecticome, but it's, it's in essence like a representation of all the thoughts that we have about a brand and how they're connected to each other in our brains. And so that's how I think about language. So I think what you're doing is pretty interesting. And I'd encourage you to check out what Michael's doing and from a neuroscience standpoint at some point. The connectome, yeah. So kind of a quick anecdote on that is actually, so one of the things when you compute with language that becomes important is this idea of a word embedding. That is basically a, a list of numbers, or think of it like a point in space, like your XY coordinate, that represents what that word means. And one of the most successful techniques to date to derive really good embeddings or really good understanding of words has actually been based on uh, what you might call a knowledge connectome, um, which is to take a knowledge graph or how a bunch of words all relate to each other and use that as a training set to learn learn these embeddings. So certainly there's maybe some interesting linkage there between natural language processing and how like the nitty gritty details of implementation work and these higher level concepts of things like a connectome and how those same words relate when we think about a brand. Yeah, yeah. I definitely think there's something between you know what you're doing and what he's doing. There's something there. I don't know if there's a business there, but there's something there. <laughs> <laughs> something worth thinking about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Well, I want to transition a bit because I love getting to know the people behind these topics we cover. And I'd love to know if there's an experience of your past that defines and makes up who you are today. Yeah, so it's, maybe that's a, it's tough to single out one. So I'm going to give you kind of two constellation of experiences that I think have driven a lot of it. So one of them, which I've talked plenty on, is doing physics. The experience there, though, is it's like two pieces that came away from that. The first is this kind of obsessive pursuit of truth. In physics, really, the only thing that matters is that you learn something that brings you and kind of the scientific community and humanity at large closer to the truth about how the universe works. And you learn a toolbox of uh, 
technical methods that allow you to kind of really hone in in as much precision as you can on getting to that truth. So kind of on one side, all of that experience kind of injected me with a bunch of skills on doing things with math and computer algorithms that I naturally bias towards, right? That kind of is my natural toolbox. One of the other things that is maybe less obvious that came from working in physics is that a lot of what you do is uh, you're in a very collaborative culture. And that means that you're working with other humans and those other humans come from really vast, diverse parts of the world. And there was more than one occasion where you would enter into a collaborative scenario where there would be individual people that you were going to work with. And one of one or two of them might actually be from two different nations that you would immediately react to as going, these, these two people from these nations must hate each other. Everything that we've ever heard about them or every anecdote that's been in the news or even in movies and how they're portrayed, these two types of people hate each other. And you put them in a room and you start working on physics. And what happens is they're just humans who have conversations with each other and they get to know each other through those conversations. And they see each other as humans who wake up and eat food and have kids and get their heart broken in a way that is all of the same. And I think seeing that that degree of disconnect between perception of people at the population level and how we think about them down to the degree of humanity that exists when you actually just put two people together and have a conversation left this lasting impact on me that led me to believe, maybe right or wrong, that you can just get people to talk. You'll actually make a whole lot of progress in understanding people for who they are. And so obviously that idea of, of seeing the value that comes from conversation paired with this kind of nerdy toolbox that I developed, I think is probably the two central things that uh, combine together to drive probably the last five to 10 years of my life. That's a wise, it's a really wise observation. And you're a young guy. I can say that because I'm old now. <laughs> it's a really wise observation. You're well a well ahead of where I was at your, at your age, I'm sure. Well, what, what fuels you? What keeps you going? Yeah, so I think more and more, initially when I was younger, I guess I'll say younger in my really early 20s, I was, it was the hardest problems. I wanted to solve whatever the hardest problems was. Very quickly, uh, the hardest problem I've learned that has emerged is finding truth. And not actually in the physics sense, because we're pretty good at that these days, but actually in the the qualitative sense or in the sense of the truth that we all make decisions based on every day. So that is the types of truths that lead you to decide who you date or what political party you support or what product you build or whether or not you support a war or oppose a war. What drives me right now is uh, kind of this relentless pursuit of those truths. And on a personal level, it means that I put a lot of effort into trying to find where the sources of truth are that I can trust and that I kind of value my friends and friendships and relationships in proportional to how much those people inject truth into my life. And on kind of the professional level, it means that as a company, it has become my obsession and now our company's obsession to evaluate everything we do by this kind of one simple question, which is, does building this bring our customers closer to the truth? And that's kind of become the rubric by which we decide all of the things that we do because it's kind of the number one thing that drives me. And I guess naturally that that makes it become a driver of the company. That's great. That's great. Well, if you were to start over again, would there be any advice you'd give your younger self? It's a good question. I think probably I'd have like some 
really simple advice that I would give my younger self, which is exercise and eat healthy way earlier. <laughs> That's a habit I started later in life yeah. and really wish I would have started it about a decade sooner. Probably the second one is to pay more attention to relationships and the human elements of things. In my younger years, again, relatively speaking, my focus was largely on things that could be quantified and things that could be computed. And I would think of even artificial intelligence, which has been kind of the last five years of my life, as the ends. What is the most wise AI that we can build is what matters most. And I wish I could have told my younger self that starting from the very beginning, literally only one thing matters, uh, and that is how close you bring people to the truth. Hmm. And I wish I would have known that a decade ago. Yeah. Well, you know, one question I like to ask folks are if there's any brands or companies or even causes that you follow or you think others should, should take notice of. Yeah. So a few that come to mind and, you know, the broad theme here is causes and companies and organizations that have this mission of bringing people closer to the truth. A few worth mentioning are one is something called the social, the center for social media responsibility. Uh, it's at the university of Michigan and it's basically a bunch of scientists and researchers who are working to figure out how do we make sense of this thing called social media that has the potential to put disinformation all over the place and make sense of it to the point we can take actions that bias it towards truth. Mm. Obviously, I think that's a, a super important thing. Yeah. Increasingly important with every day that passes, it seems. Right. A related project is something that's just getting off the ground called the Thoughtful Technology Project. It is based out of Silicon Valley. Their focus is basically to act as a consultant that any place where organizations are making decisions or have the potential to inject disinformation accidentally, that they can help build systems that mean that kind of the truth has an easier way of getting through than anything that is disinformation. And probably the last one worth mentioning is just a double click on a thing we're all aware exists. Right. And that's factcheck.org mm -hmm. in a world where kind of everyone can play fast and loose with the truth. And most of the channels through which we consume our information don't really have any bias towards truth. I think people like factcheck.org who just put in a bunch of hours to try and suss out what is true and what is false, whether they do it perfectly or not, maybe is, uh, something they're working on, but kind of that as a mission to me is perhaps one of the most important ones of this decade. I like it. I like it. Those are great suggestions and I'll, um, I'll try to link to those in the show notes as well. Last question for you. What do you feel like the future of marketing is going to look like? Yeah. So this is, I'll give my optimistic answer, which is I think the future of marketing is going to evolve to look a lot like just telling the truth to consumers. <laughs> so we'll see if that's the case, but I've certainly my my gut and my observations are that if you want to build a short-term relationship, you oversell things and you make things look better than they are and you manipulate something into place. But if you want to build a long-lasting relationship, that's done by telling people the truth and being honest. And so I think that as companies value long-term relationships with their customers over short-term, they themselves will start finding a high amount of value in, in just being honest and telling them the truth. I think you're onto something. And I only laugh because, because there is so much non-truth out there. Well, I, I don't want to call everything a lie, but it's a non-truth sometimes. Yep. Uh, and uh, so thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been fascinating. Yeah, my pleasure. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with writing and editing by Kevin Greeley. 
Social media support by Megan Woods. Art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to marketing today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners, and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.